is that really simulation? What is it that we mean when we say simulation? Why is it a topic of relevance to you both now? Has it been something that you've wanted to talk about for a while, individually, collectively? Yeah, maybe some some context to that. Was there a catalyst, maybe, is the question. Yeah, um, it's grown. Certainly my, my, my previous job at, at Oxford Brooks, you know, then sort of myself and maybe one or two others sort of did most of the legwork in, t- in terms of trying to bring some simulation into the programme. And, and and our feeling very much was that it was the mannequins that we wanted to get away from and that we found more value in other things with, you know, either using actors or using ourselves as as kind of actors or using like my kids as things and sort of it was always always felt like it was more about the debrief of what just happened, you know, was the key yep. thing for me that makes sim- simulation. Everything about it through like the more official channels or, you know, if the CSP is doing something on education, it's like simulation. Yeah, this is the answer to everything. You know, like it's it's all really positive. I'm not, and that's not to say that I don't think it is positive, but I think it's it's uncritically positive. So so everyone like bigs up something yep. that is simulation or could come under that. But then sometimes when you, you go and see it or you want to pick under it, it's like, eh. I'm not even sure that is simulation um, or yeah, it okay. be like what my definition is yep. of it here. So I, I yep. guess that's kind of can do something that we could call simulation and we could probably pick it up. We could write a paper on it. Like, and that's almost like the institutional mindset is like, let's just do something that looks really snazzy for like five people and write a paper on it. But I'm like, yeah, but there's like another 75 <laughs> that didn't do that. <laughs> like, this doesn't feel like that great, actually. That's my yeah. jumping off point. And I guess where some of those questions that I'd like to ask come from. From my point of view, I've recently moved to um, to University of Lincoln, and uh, as part of my role, we're looking at expanding the simulation program to include things like uh, virtual placements. And I think that touches on what you were saying, Ben, like, is that really simulation? What is it that we mean when we say simulation? We've always historically had a thousand hours of clinical education that you need to do as part of the the degree. So yeah. As, as the recommendation of here, it's like, but they've kept the thousand hours and then also said, but really 750 of that is kind of in practice. And the other 250 could be any, it could be like an education placement, a research placement simulation. Da, 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 da. And, yep, and yep, so, yep, 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 so then yep. it starts to get at this thing of like, are we just seeing simulation now as a way to replace clinical practice hours? To my mind, it's not a good way to do that. It's like it's really expensive way of doing that. And and to do it at the scale of like how many hours you get out of practice is is probably yeah. not even economical or sensible to, to do. I think it's got a yeah. really important place for giving specific experiences that might not be you know replicated elsewhere. But but it's a totally different thing that we're, we're, we're talking about here. So for me, it's always been about where does simulation fit in the taught curriculum in university. Take a moment to pause the recording and think about what simulation means to you. What are the taken-for-granted assumptions about what simulation is? What kinds of activities are included under the umbrella of simulation? What is the purpose of simulation? And how do we know whether or not we achieve those purposes? When you're ready, press play and continue listening. It's fascinating to hear the context. It's going through my mind as you're both talking is what's happened in Australia, I guess, over the last 10 to 15 years has been somewhat similar and somewhat different to it sounds like what's happening now with some of the talk about uh, hours and and placement and substitution for simulation or or maybe other things and that that comment you're saying about it needing 
you know, that doesn't necessarily make sense. It might be effective, but it's so prohibitively expensive that it's not going to happen. Because that's essentially what's happened in Australia was sort of early 2010s. There was, uh, you know, 25% of placements were substituted with really sort of well-designed simulation practice. And it was great. Students actually did did better um, when they compared who was involved in simulation in as, as replaced with their placements versus who, who wasn't. So sort of RCTs, sort of educational RCTs, which were pretty uh, landmark at the time, given how challenging it is to do RCTs or uh, in education, if, if it's even appropriate. But essentially, it, it showed a benefit, but it, none of the resources, none of the framework, none of the equipment and anything was sustained because it was just so expensive. So what the, all the universities did, which just went back to standard kind of what, what was happening with placements and maybe a few weeks were substituted for extra things on campus or from home. Nothing at all as to what the intention was with simulation. And, and so I'm sort of just reflecting on whether that's going to happen again in the UK. Hopefully it doesn't. Something more sustainable happens and, and even around the world. And, and I think that experience is what's birthed a lot of my interest in, in simulation and, and this who else can be involved in sim? What are the core sort of components that that make it powerful and effective and that's maybe unique to simulation that that other you know educational approaches don't enable um that might be similar to, to clinical placement if that's what we need to sort of complete and do anyway um so yeah i guess i'm just yeah reflecting on some of those points pause the recording and spend a few moments thinking about what shane has mentioned even when simulation has been demonstrated to be effective it may be that the cost of simulation is so high that it's prohibitively expensive. Is your school thinking about simulation in the curriculum? Or do you already have a simulation program up and running? Has anyone factored cost into the process? What are some of the other evaluation outcomes you should be thinking about? When you're ready, unpause and continue with the episode. Tell us a little bit, Shane, about your perception of what simulation is. When... I'm thinking simulation. When I'm re- using that word, uh, I'm imagining the the educational activity, much like a lecture or a case-based learning session or clinical placement, some sort of educational design activity uh, that is is unique to the other activities, but involves uh, a, a, an activity that is replicated um, that replicates some form of the clinical environment and and enables us or, or the learners to be active in some way. David Garber, back in the early 2000s, coined this definition referring to simulation as a technique rather than a technology. And that technique was about replicating the environment, making an activity that's immersive, that everyone is sort of fully engaged in or the learner is fully engaged in as if they were in the real environment. But that activity would be supplemented with debriefing, reflection, some sort of other um, educational strategies to, to enable learning. That was very much when simulation had sort of initially been talked about being more a technology, computer-based, virtual, um, mannequins, you know, all about technology. Whereas actually, if you're trying to simulate the clinical environment, if you're trying to replicate what's going on, you don't need technology always to enable that, which is often where we go to in physiotherapy. What I think needs a little bit more thought is the features of the, the, the human factors, the, the engagement that we have, how we set it up, what we talk about as the um, the way we might engage as opposed to the actual practical, physical things. So, for example, there's this concept of suspension of disbelief, thinking sort of acting theatrical contexts of 
getting to the to the point where whoever's engaging in the experience can suspend my disbelief at the door. So I'm going to pretend to believe and I'm going to engage as if it's for real. And there's even evidence to say that if you've got family, you know, simulated family members or a, a, an educator that's trying to go and if, if we engage as the educator and, and suspend our disbelief as a role model as an example, that actually leads to the engagement and the suspension of disbelief of the learners. So it's got nothing to do with the setup. That doesn't cost anything but it can have a huge impact on the value of the experience, the engagement. And so is, is there anything in particular then that we can do to help that suspension of disbelief? It, it, like, is it, is it about the introduction? Is it about like yeah. establishing the safety? Those, those kind of things which seem to be quite key yep. components. In, in some ways, it could be helped by us being involved as educators in this scenario. If we're, if we're entirely outside of that, and, and does that make it, does that mean that it's, it's more clearly a simulation thing? And, and, and is it helpful yes. for those lines to blur? All of those things, I would say, Ben, and and even the way that we are transparent about what's going on, you know, we might think that we're going to just not tell them exactly what's going to happen here. We're going to surprise them a little bit with that because that's what happens in the real world. That doesn't necessarily lead to better engagement. If we're completely upfront about saying, this is a simulation, this is an attempt to replicate the clinical environment, the task we're going to practice today, the thing we want to achieve is actually practicing this skill or pulling all this together. So this is what's set up. This is what the activity will involve you're encouraged to, we encourage you to actually engage as if it's for real. There may be things that you, you don't think are exactly like they wouldn't be the real world. Try as much as you can not to worry about it and let's focus on the task. And, and there's evidence to say that that, you know, that briefing, that setup, that transparency, um, as in addition to the role modeling or the exemplar kind of let's engage with it are really helpful in, in actually getting us to engage in, in, in the experience. The phrase that's been coined in different ways is, is the fiction contract. So asking the learners or asking everyone to agree before we start that we're going to engage in this as as if it's for real. And, and that's essentially we make a contract with each other that, that we're going to do that. And and that, that can be really helpful because, you know, low levels of realism can be really meaningful for us at some times. And sometimes high levels of realism can, can be really not that meaningful depending on so many different factors learning is a social activity so who else is involved what's going on what else is happening for me that day <laughs> what's happening tomorrow or what's happened just five minutes before i walked in today um those factors are obviously important too i remember being at a conference a few years ago seeing someone present some results of a simulation where they had a, a high-end mannequin i think it was for insertion of an icd a really high-end expensive mannequin and cardboard boxes and they found that the outcomes following that simulation experience were similar, regardless of whether students were practicing the insertion on a cardboard box and the, the mannequin. And is it reasonable to think that with a, a different kind of a briefing, a different kind of a contract with students from the very beginning, we might actually be able to scale back some of the cost to the university? Now might be a good time to pause the recording and reflect on the idea of the fiction contract and its role in the suspension of disbelief. Do you tend more towards creating a simulation environment that aims to perfectly model reality? Or do you start by agreeing with students that what's about to happen isn't real, but that you're all going to pretend it is? When you're ready, press play and continue with the podcast. And I think what I'm thinking about as you say that, Michael, is I wonder if there is still a point amongst all this that we still need to, again, put put effort into some of these things. And, and one of the examples is is um, if you're working with professional actors, simulated patients, people 
portraying a, a, the role of a patient. Um, you know, does does age matching matter? For, for most of us, probably does <laughs> to a point. You know, you're supposed to be working with a patient who's 85 and they're clearly 21. That might be hard to to park at the door when you're getting in. Maybe it's not for some. So I think there's some some really interesting questions about what are the features that we need to address. And, and that's maybe an individual curriculum session sort of reflection point too, that what's actually relevant here to try and put effort into replicating and what's maybe not worth putting effort into. And maybe that's, we need to co-design that with students too, to say, well, <laughs> you know, when we're evaluating, this is what we thought would be helpful. What was actually helpful or not from an educational sort of design point of view. About 10 years ago, a lot of work done in Australia trying to reduce the amount of time in clinical placement and, and spend more time in, in simulation instead of as much time in clinical placement. And as you, you may be aware, so some big RCTs here looking at students actually did better when they did a quarter of their placement in simulation and three quarters of it in the real clinical placement environment. Um, likely a result of a bit more time unpacking things that were going on, a bit more specific learning that was sort of facilitated rather than sometimes the, the, the chaos that, that clinical education can be. But that was just obviously too expensive to to continue. And this is where this idea of peer simulation came along. Students or, or educators portraying the patient role ourselves, instead of outsourcing that to someone else who comes in and learns to be a role, if we're looking at human role players, um, students portraying roles for each other um, is something we do in, in role play. What are the things that we could try and elevate that or change that to be more of a, a, an immersive simulation experience? Um, some colleagues bought some really cheap masks. It was like 50 bucks per, per mask. Um, that look, you look like an old person and the mask plus a bit of training for the students, a, a, a scenario that they didn't design themselves about a patient that they were portraying ha, has enabled some pretty amazing sort of learning in, in some sessions, you know, where, where I've been working recently. Um, and for others, it was just that visual was actually enough and it helps them engage where they couldn't. For others, they say, I don't need the mask. This is so full on and it's so different to what I've done before and it's what I'm going to be doing you know, in a few weeks' time when I'm out on placement, that, that they didn't need that. Um, so having some options and understanding what might be relevant for that. Pause the recording and take a few moments to think about the idea of peer simulation. What might the simulation experience look like when we get students to participate in the process? Shane mentioned the use of masks to create low-cost simulation experiences. Think about how your school uses simulation. Could there be low-cost options that help achieve the goals you care about? When you're ready, press play and continue listening. We've talked here about simulation, the immersion, like on the understanding that the student is immersed in the simulation and that that's kind of inherent and obvious. And I'm not sure that that's always the case. So there are what I've definitely seen increasingly is, is sort of discussions around having a simulation that some students might be doing and then other students are observing that. And that can take different levels of engagement as observers. So it could be, you know, that you've got a, an, an, a more active observer role. Do you know what I mean? Where you're then being involved in leading the debrief. So you're sort of taking notes and, and feeding something forward. Or it might be a more kind of passive observer role where there's actually a larger number and you're, you know, you're you're watching it. And you might still be involved in the debrief and have an opportunity then to sort of contribute to that that discussion. So I guess I was interested in just sort of unpicking that a little bit. And at what point do we feel that a student is no longer really having a simulation experience um, as they move from immersed participant to observer? You know, is that is that something that we need to think about? I think if we just adopt one of those frameworks of what a simulation activity looks like for a second, I talked before about sort of six phases. You prepare for the simulation, 
you you brief everyone on what's about to happen, you complete the simulation activity, you debrief about it afterwards, evaluate whether everyone found the, stu- the, the session effective, and then reflect as an educator afterwards. That, that's one of the frameworks that, that I know I find quite helpful when designing a session. And if we adopt that as the observers, right? So if we're delineating, you've got a, say a therapist, an observer, uh, and maybe maybe someone's a patient, maybe not, maybe just someone's a therapist and an observer, they can still participate in, in sort of all of those phases. It, in that activity, they've got something that's immersive. So there's, there's a, there was a really nice systematic review from a few years ago, I think there was some Aussie researchers, where they're looking at what's effective about an observer role, what makes it useful and immersive. And, and I remember there were three things that came out. The first was the, the clarity of the role of the observer, being really uh, specific on, this is your role and this is how you will be involved or not involved and this is what are you require what you're required to do the aim of the session this is how it will look like using a some sort of tool so some sort of activity that facilitates the immersion so there's lots of different tools out there we could create our own looking at um you know did you observe things that went well things that you might suggest improvements on you could do all sorts of clinical reasoning activities if it was a, an interview or a physical exam or a treatment, you know, document what happened and develop some problem lists or goals or whatever it might be. It's quite, it would be quite straightforward to develop some sort of activity, but giving guidance on specifically what the student's meant to be doing. <laughs> and the third thing being including those people in the debrief. So, you know, there's, there's simulation activities out there in the health professions world where the simulation itself goes for a minute, the debrief goes for an hour <laughs> and that's all you needed in terms of the activity to get really powerful learning and it's the skill of the facilitator and the input of everyone involved to actually make that really effective. So that's that seems to be a really big feature too. So if you're working with it, just because they didn't do the task of the physio, they've done some other task. They're equally important, equally valid, equally useful to this activity, whatever it may be. So let's debrief about it as much. That framework I, I found really helpful in making it almost to scale, <laughs> scaling up the, the breadth of these you know activities that we're doing to make it a little bit more effective and efficient. There, there's some things that I think I find helpful. Is there a point at which, you know, there we're talking, you might have like one therapist, one observer. It feels like it's not going to be the same if you've got one therapist, 20 observers, because now the ability for all of those observers to really be involved in the debrief in the same way. And so to complete those six steps starts to get pretty squeezed on that, I would say. You know, you, you they're not each going to have something new to contribute necessarily, you know, and and and, and so that, that level of, of engagement and immersion, it tends to, to drop. So is, is there a point at which that's probably too many in your experience even if there's no literature on this to, to kind of say could have maybe a hundred students in a room maybe and and if only a couple are, are actually engaging depending on how significant it is what happens or how memorable how meaningful what's going on in the activity you know use of small groups and facilitators and student guides to kind of what they're working through uh, there may still be a really you know, some of those different strategies might still enable this really huge scale learning without necessarily many people doing the actual acting themselves in terms of acting and the actions required for the simulation. Um, that's, I think, I'd be interesting to test out. From experience, uh, it, it's ranged from sort of three students, six students to sort of 30 to 40. Um, it, it would be interesting to test out, but I think it takes a lot of effort as the educator, the facilitator, the, the preparation to kind of think through how am I going to set everyone up? What's everyone going to be doing at every point in time? How am I going to draw it together? How are others going to help draw it together? How can the students help draw it together if I've got prompts on the screen in terms of a slide and they can work through those questions and talk in small groups and then we do some big group reporting back? Um, so 
I think all of those skills come together. And, and so the, the preparation phase and, and the debriefing phase when it comes to simulation are probably where the, the effort lies to, to trial and scale up that simulation activity would be the, the things that come to mind. Take a moment to pause the recording and think about some of what's being discussed. How much time do you spend thinking about the quality of the debriefing session? Have you considered other roles for students to take in the simulation? Do you use different approaches for debriefing depending on what students have done? How much training and preparation do the facilitators undergo? What size group do you think is optimal for simulation? Has this conversation identified possibilities to increase the scale of simulation in your school? When you're ready, press play and continue with the episode. Pulling back to the, the 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 points we were saying before around you know simulation for skill development, a simulation when I say skill development, I mean like a clinical skill, you know, versus maybe a clinical reasoning skill development. It feels like those observer roles are going to be more effective. Obviously, if it's something where you know we're looking at the communication, we're looking at the reasoning, we're looking at like you know did we did we get to a point where we were agreed with the patient what the plan was going to be for that or whatever it might be. If it's about actual developing the skill of suctioning somebody or whatever clearly every student needs to do the activity right you know so so again it's thinking about what the outcomes are is going to guide like whether you need everyone to pass through the the, the specific scenario or, or whether you can have more of an observer role within it i wonder whether if, if every student had a different part of the the suctioning checklist or the the process the procedure and and each you know you had say you had 10 steps and each the 10 students had a step each and they all had to focus on that step and critique it you know, there might be some really powerful learning there too to go, they'll, they'll never do that again when they're <laughs> on paper and suctioning someone. I'm never going to forget to do my hand hygiene or whatever step they, they need to go through. Um, so I still wonder whether there's even some real practical procedural things, you know, at range of movement testing, strength testing. I still think there's some creativity around how you might unpack the task or the steps. Or as you say, there's certain behaviors that you might, we might look for as exemplars. And I guess, as I'm speaking out loud, um, we've almost got a reference point here, don't we, for the yeah. students to kind of consider the reference point of the example communication skills or the example clinical reasoning justification, the, the exemplar steps that should be followed. Maybe that's the, the tool that's helpful um, to help them draw some connections, make some meaning of, of the activity that's going on. Do you have a different perspective? Maybe, like, maybe there is a point where, nah, it's probably not going to work. If, if you do it in that much detail and you've got too many observers. It, it's, it's good because I think you're probably pushing back at, at, at where I would come at it, it, it from in, in, a, in a positive way. So this is where I, I get back to like, well, what's the simulation part? And I think, I think you, the, you know, the six steps you've been talking about, I, I think are really good. Like what, what I'm not querying here is that it could be a really good educational experience for 20 students to all focus on one aspect of suctioning that somebody else is doing and critique it and, and unpick it. I'm not sure it's simulation. Does that make sense? I think one person has done some simulated suctioning and 20 people have critiqued simulation suctioning. I guess my, my question is like, should we say that 20 people have done a suction simulation at the end of that? Does it matter? Is this just semantics? It feels to me like what we're getting is a, is a sort of a terminology creep of simulation into activities that are really useful learning activities. I'm not disputing that. When it then is attached to things like clinical hours. So when we then say like, well, we don't need to do a thousand hours of clinical practice anymore. We need to do 750 and 250 could be other things like simulation. And then we say that simulation is watching somebody else doing simulation. So we're now like two steps removed from the practice. 
why on earth are we still saying that we need to count that hour? Like this is an in, an integral part of someone's clinical training that they couldn't possibly not have done to practice. The sort of logic around that just really falls down for me. And, and so I guess why it feels like it matters to get these definitions right, to sort of say, if, if what we're saying is that simulation is a certain thing, it needs to hit a certain level of, of something, you know, on these, these continuums to be appropriate to then count towards this. What do you think about the need for every student to participate in every step of the simulation? Do you think there's value in having students complete only small segments of a technique and having other students observe that? Can you think of other types of skills you could develop in simulation where students don't participate in every part of the process? Is this really simulation? When you're ready, unpause and continue. The, the other area where I've thought, <laughs> I guess, here is around um, virtual reality. You know, th there's a lot of talk about virtual reality simulation. It seems clear to me that you could simulate things in virtual reality, but it also seems pretty clear to me that you can be involved in a, you can, you can have some experience of a virtual reality thing and it probably not really be simulation, uh, but it's going to be an easy thing for people to kind of look snazzy buy the kit, badge it a simulation, and then tick off 10 hours of clinical practice. And that feels that we're not coming at it from the best place in order to do it. As I say, not to take away from the potentially useful educational aspects of any of these things, but it worries me that the reason that we're looking for them is to plug gaps in you know, other aspects of, of education rather than seeing them as what can they add to this module that I'm teaching here, you know, um, which is where I've always wanted to bring simulations into things is to think, well, what can I move out of the lecture theatre or out of whatever and into simulation? That feels like this, that feels like always a positive move. Whereas when it's like, what can I take away from clinical practice to make simulation and then uh, remove from simulation, maybe that feels less positive. And, uh, and it feels like that's leading the conversation more at the minute than the other way. I want to come in and just to add some more context. I'm I'm one of the people responsible for looking at VR as, um, as a replacement for some of what we might want students to experience in clinical practice. So we've just bought a whole bunch of VR kits um, in the school. And the idea behind that was not so much to replace parts of clinical practice with simulation, but to try and simulate parts of clinical practice that are unethical or impossible for students to experience in the real world. You know, having a first-person experience of a homeless person, a domestic abuse situation, you know, anything involving kids, learning disabilities, these are all the kinds of things where we can give students a first-person experience of being in that situation. So being the victim of a verbal abuser, like you could be in your VR environment and you could have a someone who's screaming at you right up in your face and that produces a visceral emotional response. And then we can have a great debrief after that. Um, let's talk a little bit about what that means. Try and get into the head of the person experiencing it. Like we can try and put the student into that situation because they absolutely come across patients who have had those experiences and to try and develop an empathy with what that person might have been going through. I know we'll never even get close to that, but it makes a big difference to see this is what it feels like for someone to be screaming at you in your face rather than for us to talk about what domestic abuse sometimes looks like. Another thought that I'm having as, as we're talking, as I'm listening, is that there's still an assumption a lot of the time that clinical practice or clinical education might be the, the gold standard for so many educational activities. And, and they, that might not always be the case. That's a bit of a historical maybe assumption more so than based on evidence that it's effective. Um, of course, it's effective, but 
patients are unpredictable, clinical scenarios are unpredictable, clinical education is unpredictable, every student's experience is different. There's nothing about it that's standardised. Okay, that's maybe a bit of a bold statement, but it's it's not as as much of a gold standard maybe as we're assuming sometimes. And and I think that's where maybe the the definitions of different approaches to learning matter, role play, simulation, clinical placement, maybe that's how we categorise things. But you know, bringing learning theory into it too might be also helpful in how we categorise it in terms of considering cognitive load in different educational activities, clinical placement versus simulation versus role play, or considering, you know, constructive as approach to learning, learning as participation, learning as social experience, all these kind of things that we know help actually facilitate behaviour change and learning. Maybe we should be categorising our different activities in, in that way rather than just some other reference point. Um, but I think... This is the, the critical nature of it, right? Reflecting on what is the what are the features that are helpful, unhelpful, and, and I think that example you gave of, of the suctioning too, Ben, is you know how is watching someone do it uh, or activity or different to watching, as you say, so Michael in, in VR or watching just sitting at home watching a video of someone doing suctioning and having the same checklist. Are there different levels of immersion, different levels of socialization, different levels of environment replication that that I might need at that certain time to engage or learn or others may or may not. And I think if we can get to the point where we as educators are considering those things, um, it's certainly something I want to do more and and, and certainly have found helpful at different times where we're bringing the the creativity into the educational design. We're, We're good as physios at thinking the clinical stuff, thinking of clinical scenarios, thinking of stuff that needs to happen. But sometimes when we're designing our educational activities, we we have so much potential still on how things can be tailored and designed um, to be to be helpful with those different factors. Yeah, and I think just examples that that you, that you gave, um, um, Michael. I, th- I think they're really good examples for, um, for 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 VR. I still think they're probably that's a bet that's a better replacement for a lecture on physical abuse or whatever. You know, rather. But but we're just com- we're coming at the same thing from, from different things. I, th- I think education is it's really useful. I guess the ones that the the more like off the shelf ones that you can buy, where the, it, it's sort of like a a sort of um, threaded you know so you, you come up with something and there's like you've got two options to do here i think that those are the ones where i i think i have i have the most reticence about because it feels like that that's not how clinical reasoning works even in our head it's not like okay i've got two options i'll go for b oh that was wrong for this reason okay let's talk about it and 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 those sort of approaches i think are probably the ones that i'm, I'm pushing back on or i want to push back on on most pause the recording to spend a few moments reflecting on the use of digital technologies in simulation What do you think about the use of virtual reality to simulate certain first-person experiences? Is this really simulation? And what about branching case studies that are more point-and-click in nature? Are those tools useful at all? And even if they are, do they qualify as simulation? When you're ready, press play and continue. Do you have any thoughts on what it even means to say that simulation works? You know, works for what, works for who, works in what contexts? There's a lot of evidence that says taking a simulated approach to the clinical environment is effective. Maybe it doesn't matter too much about how you do it because so much research says it's effective, whether it's for learning, for achieving certain outcomes across knowledge, skills, behaviours. There's also some evidence per se that it's effective for patients and and helpful for patients in in some disciplines. Um, And so I think, yeah, what's an appropriate question to ask when it comes to simulation? I I think we probably should be asking the same questions of all the sort of educational research we're doing. Um, not specific to simulation. The priorities 
costs at the moment seem to be budgets and costs are always something that we talk about, but we don't necessarily do research as much other than the time we spend on it. Same with what's actually the definition of effective and learning. Of course, there's practice thresholds and behaviours and, and things that, that our students need to demonstrate to, to gain entry to the profession um, or even a different level. So, of course, there's those, those learning outcomes that sort of stand the test of time. And there seems to be some helpful examples of, of how we might approach that. Um, physio is challenging because of the clinical reasoning, the critical nature and the communication of what we do, I think, to, to research that. We, I've done a bit of work with student perspectives and some of the qualitative approaches, which is helpful, but we also know students self-report that simulation is helpful, so why do we need to keep doing that? I, I think what seems to be the pressing priority is what works for a certain you know, subgroup or, or classification or whoever it is that we're working with under what conditions for a certain purpose. So the, the more individualized specific things, because anecdotally, we have impressions on what we think helps the students the most to learn certain skills or certain activities or behaviors, um, what we think they need to go through or what reflective activities are helpful to get there. So I don't know what the broad sort of maybe questions are. Um, I don't have a sense, but I think there's some potential for adapting those classic sort of simulation modalities, which is redefining simulation in terms of me portraying roles, you portraying roles, bringing other things to be simulators to try and immerse it and, and understanding why it's worked or what's worked to help actually get some, some really sort of rigorous sort of repeatable structures that help us, help educators and help each other do it more when you don't have the time to ask these questions or, or maybe don't have the, the vocabulary to, to know what to ask and how to do it. I think there's just so much of that, you know, global benefit to others that, that I find helpful from doing research um, is, is benefiting from <laughs> from the questions others have asked. So they, they seem like the big, um, like some big priorities um, for me. I think one of the things that I, I'm, I'd be interested in and um, is, is, not just the what works, but how is it working? So for, for me, there's there's a gap there around qualitative research, but from a more ethnographic perspective of, of actually what's occurring in the simulation, what's occurring in the debrief, like how how is learning happening? You know, we're pretty sure learning is happening. It seems to be effective. People come out of this and they're better able to do the skill or do the reasoning. I wasn't aware of anything that really looked at, at how is it happening. And, and, and then that will help us or could help us to design things and develop things that are then you know putting students through a, a, a learning process so I think then matching that like like you were you, you were talking about Shane with the learning theories it's then going to help you know help us to, to understand better that, that that is actually what's occurring and this is about you know the the, the, the social constructive learning of, of, of what happens in, in, in the deep or whatever it, it might be. Take a moment to pause the recording and reflect on the kinds of research questions that might be useful to consider in simulation. What are the questions around efficacy that may be useful to pursue? Effective for who, for what, and in what contexts? Is it enough to know that simulation works, or do we need to know more about how it works? When you're ready, unpause and continue for the last segment in this episode. I'd love to hear and read and see some of that, some of that in action, Ben, because I think you know, if there's a clutch point of, of something's changing with how things are done, so whether it just is the example of now there's going to be lots of simulation, that, that is the chance to really reflect on so much more than just the simulation part of it. And I always reflect on, you know, we have five-week clinical placements here in Australia and, and five weeks is too long for some students and not enough for others to demonstrate the behaviours they need to do. And I still get fascinated as to why is it five weeks? Why are we not shortening some and lengthening others and individualising? And that 
this this is what um, some of these thoughts were prompted in the one of your podcasts on the, the online um, and remote physio programs was this you know p- potential that that might have had to try and individualize the physiotherapy education to learners more than we maybe typically do when there's standard curriculum and standard sessions and yes of course there's things that need to be demonstrated but the actual path to get there is going to be so different yet often what we deliver is is all the same or is then put on the student and, and there's some responsibility there in terms of adult learning that's fine to kind of drive and fill your learning needs and achieve your learning goals but that's not always how we act as educators so I think what are the indicators that it is working so that we can scale things up or down um, what are the things that might be mandatory for everyone to, to participate in if there are mandatory things and what's our suite of kind of optional activities or strategies that we can tailor up or, or down in, in an efficient way for different groups of students that are demonstrating certain indicators. And, and I think maybe the, the shift in simulation, the shift in practice, the question about online learning is, is a bit of a catalyst to maybe getting some more <laughs> reflection or critique on, on some of those factors um, and, and just how powerful that could be for, for transforming learning, for, for getting things done quicker and more effectively and, and, and at scale um, for, for our physiotherapy students. As you both are talking there, I think the answer is pretty obvious. It's going to be machine learning and video-based analysis of these simulations, obviously. <laughs> Artificial intelligence is the way that this is going to play out. I, I, was, I was just laughing about just how, how far apart our, our like optimal <laughs> simulation endpoint would be that, we, that the two of us would get to, probably the three of us would get to. Um, which, maybe that's a good thing. I'm not saying that this is my preference. I'm just saying how it's going to play out. <laughs> yeah. But it would either be that or you'd be doing it all by email. So there's one. <laughs> Is there anything before we wrap up that you think we should touch on that we that we haven't talked about? What would be interesting is to understand, you know, what, what big ideas are maybe more relevant or more of a priority for, for different educators at different points in different areas. If, if any of these ideas are um, stirring something up, you know, now's a really good time to really try and, I think, understand that and, and latch on to that. Thanks so much, Shane. I really appreciate it. Yeah, guys, thank, thank you so much for, for, you know, sending this invite out. Appreciate you yeah, sharing some thoughts with me too.